Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Secretary to investigate the matter, but also for the Solicitor General to satisfy herself uh, that the appropriate legal orders have been com- have been complied with. And I can speak because First Minister of Scotland, I've retained my WhatsApp messages. Whatever the inquiries, Scottish or UK inquiry, want to see, of course, will be handled. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. We're recording on Wednesday, the first of November. Unbelievably, we've made it to November. Well done, everyone. Uh, on the podcast, as usual, Jeff Aberdeen, who was Alex Simmons' chief of staff when he was. First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Hello. And Andy McKeever's here as well, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Morning. It's miserable, miserable, miserable. It's miserable weather. It's in a miserable world, and I'm even cheered up by you lot. Come on. (laughs) Good luck, everyone. Can I just say, to cheer you up then, seriously, and I'm not joking, I'm looking out my window, and the next-door neighbours had a massive Halloween kind of um, presentation on their garden, which included two witches, which, as we speak, are being blown blowing right into the bin <laughs> lorry truck literally as we speak right now oh my word I, uh, now that is entertaining that is entertaining for the benefit only of uh, fellow podcasters not for the benefit of anybody else but if i turn my screen you can see my spider's web see my spider's web they're just coming into view is that what that is you can't see the massive spider but that is a large spider's web which for <laughs> two days every year hangs from my house well, that's, See, that's well done. Well done. Last night, I was cheered by the sight of uh, a group of teenagers doing well. What we used to call a ding dong runaway on a on a house just near near, near where I live. I, d- I don't know what you used to call it. Basically, when you knock on the door and then run away, but uh, it has different names. I think different parts of the country. Uh, ding and, dong ditch. That's what the ding Edinburgh. Dong ding dong ditch in Edinburgh. That's what that's called. Ding dong okay. ditch. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure our guest. I almost revealed his name. Oh, I'm sure. Oh no! In fact, you did it on Twitter yesterday. I don't need to worry about it. I'm sure uh, Alex will have many many. Any letters in his email inbox complaining about ding dong ditches this time of year? The inbox will be full of that. That and potholes. That'd be a data protection violation, but yes, lots of that. Is that not the experience? Is that not the experience of Liberal Democrats when they're coming? Just ring the door. It's more It's the reverse, actually. It's that people pretend not to be in rather than cameras is running away. But Jeff, we're the wind is getting up in Edinburgh. I was just reflecting on you talking about the witches being blown into the uh, into the waste paper. Well, the the refuse collection truck. This is one of those days when every town and every house in Edinburgh either simultaneously loses or gains a trampoline. So it's. Uh, <laughs> Do you know what? We've also just totally wrecked Callum's segue for the second week in a row. He's not even actually introduced Alex yet. He's not actually on the podcast yet, and yet he's already spoken. Trying to professionalise this operation, and yet again it has descended into total chaos early doors. I'm here to try to uphold some level of editorial and production standard, and despite my best efforts, it's proving impossible as the weeks go by. Let's welcome to the podcast Alex Cole Hamilton, uh, who is leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. <laughs> Honestly, as of 2021. I'm usually. 
<laughs> All introductions of me usually sort of contain that level of laughter. That really <laughs> not at all. No, we're, really, we're really glad to have you here. Uh, Alex is also the MSP for the Edinburgh Western constituency as well. Alex, thank you. Thanks for your patience, your forbearance with, um, with Morecambe and Wise, who are also on the line. Uh, right, we want to talk about uh, several things we want to talk about today. I, I want to start with the, the COVID uh, inquiry, or more accurately, I suppose, uh, WhatsApps, <laughs> frankly, is where we're where we're getting to this week. Um, there has been a lot of discussion this week around what is being made available by those who were in the Scottish government during the pandemic. What's being made available by them to well, both inquiries actually, the UK COVID inquiry and the Scottish COVID inquiry. And I actually think just by by way of getting us started, let's have a little listen to Hamza Youssef who was speaking to LBC earlier this week, following reporting that WhatsApp messages uh, sent and received by Scottish government ministers and officials may have been deleted. Uh, here is the First Minister. I have. I can, I'm not sure where those press reports have come from in regards to my own uh, WhatsApp messages. I've kept WhatsApp messages and uh, fully uh, uh, intend to hand them over to the COVID inquiry, whatever the COVID inquiry wishes to see. I'm more than happy to do that. So I certainly retained uh, my WhatsApp messages. What about the former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and, and Jason Leach and the reports that they've deleted their WhatsApp messages? How damaging could that be to an inquiry? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that the former First Minister can speak for herself in terms of what she has kept, what she's retained and what she hasn't done and the rationale for that. Remember, of course, we had a social media messaging policy which actually required us to routinely delete WhatsApp messages um, and that was that was the, the policy at the time. Now, of course, the do not destroy notice is one that I expect everybody to comply with, Scottish government ministers, former ministers and, of course, government officials and, and clinical directors and clinical advisors. So that is my, my, my expectation. Right. We're going to go in search of some clarity, I think, on the podcast this week. Andy, let's come to you first of all, because that, I mean, far be it from me to say, that felt like a classic Hamza Yusuf moment where he gave a lot of information that actually muddied the waters in terms of what is actually going on here. As we record on Wednesday morning, are we clearer as to what is going on with WhatsApp messages during the pandemic and the COVID inquiry? Um, well, there might be some people who are. Um, might even be some people on this podcast who are, but I'm not particularly. I, I, I'm not clear on uh, what the rules are and where um, around WhatsApps. I know because, uh, as others on this podcast will, I know that sometimes when you engage with ministers and special advisors and other politicians on WhatsApp, they do have the disappearing messages function on. But from my memory, that is a relatively recent phenomenon and they haven't always had that. So um, there, is, uh, there is some practice of that happening. Um, so I, I can't give a huge amount more clarity, but I can certainly give um, what I think is actually two contradictory views on it. And it's okay for me to be contradictory because I'm not a politician, so I can be contradictory if I want to. Um, on the one hand... I actually think it's important that politicians can engage in private messages that they know will never be made public. I think that's important. Um, some of the some of the good things that get done, most of the good things perhaps that get done at government level, start off with very private conversations that you wouldn't ever want to be made public. Um, and there's lots of examples I could give, but it is important that you're able to have that. It's the equivalent of the old conversation in the corridor, which with people mm. not as often being in Parliament anymore, is actually important to be able to have, whether it's with colleagues or with stakeholders or with others. So the practice of being able to engage in private messaging um, that will never be made public is important and it actually leads to a lot of very, very good results in government. I think that's an important thing to say. Um, the contradictory point which I would make is that um, COVID will be looked back on in half a century uh, as one of the most significant things that has ever happened to us. And so I think it is very important that we understand as much as we can about the decision-making process around that time, especially towards the end of it, especially the later lockdowns and especially the school closures, which I think could be looked upon uh, look back upon as being one of the biggest public disasters that we've ever had with consequences that we can't even imagine now. Um, and I would really like to know who knew what, who wanted what, um, and who was involved in those particular decisions. As I say, especially at the end when we were 
I think, ignoring the change in the epidemiology of the virus um, and taking decisions that we thought were more political than medical. So, sorry, contradictory points, but I think that's, um, that is where I am on it. That's an interesting scene set. Let me just add then a bit more background to all of this, uh, because it kind of started with Jamie Dawson, KC, who's the lead counsel for uh, the UK COVID inquiries module, that's what they call it, module on Scotland, who said last week, very few messages appear to have been retained from key decision makers in Holyrood, despite Whitehall ministers handing over similar material in high volumes. After that, the Times revealed that Jason Leach, who was Scotland's National Clinical Director, has no messages to submit because he deleted his WhatsApp communications daily. The Sunday Mail then reported that Nicola Sturgeon had also deleted messages. And at this point, I think we should hear from her. She spoke to reporters in the Scottish Parliament yesterday. I understand that given the volume and the content of some of the messages from the UK government, there's an assumption that we all worked like that. I did not manage uh, the COVID response by WhatsApp. For example, I was not a member of any WhatsApp groups. I managed the COVID response from my office in St Andrew's House from early morning to late at night, face-to-face meetings with those that were there, Zoom calls, team calls. Um, And of course, I stood up every day and I set out to the public uh, the basis of our decisions and why we were taking certain decisions. I will set out in full to the inquiry uh, how I operated, uh, what I hold, what I don't hold and the reasons for that. But I am satisfied uh, I handled information in line with the policies that you've heard the Deputy First Having promised open to the charge of cover-up, doesn't it? Uh, look, I gave my all to the management of the pandemic. Uh, transparency for the families affected by everybody affected by the pandemic matters really a lot to me. Um, I did my best every day, as you heard me say many times over the course of the pandemic. I did not get everything right, but I did my best. And I want the process of these inquiries to get uh, to the heart of uh, what happened, uh, the things that governments got right, the things that governments and, and leaders like me didn't get right. You've heard already the volume of documents that the Scottish Government has provided. Um, and I will, I would expect to be giving a evidence again to the UK inquiry early in the new year, although that's for the inquiry to confirm. And I will answer all uh, questions that are put to me. Transparency matters to me in this. That is Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, Jeff, what are your reflections on where things are at? Yeah, there's just so many questions um, uh, around this entire issue, and I'm not entirely sure we'll be able to answer them all in this podcast, but perhaps we can put a bit of a spotlight on where we think the key crux of the issues are. I want to go back to something that Andy said very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, He talked about particularly we need to understand the decision-making process uh, towards the end of COVID. I actually think we need to understand the process at the start of COVID as well, because that was the uh, parts of the policy decisions, of course, that were discharged elderly people into care homes. And I think that that's a a crucial part of uh, the the, the pandemic response, uh, both in Scotland and indeed at the UK level. the reality is, and I agree with what a lot of Andy says in terms of the better decision-making starting with informal conversations, but when it comes to COVID, Nicola Sturgeon knew well, fine, uh, as she said um, at the um, uh, her lectern in her TV address in May 2020, that she knew inquiries were inevitable. And that's really the, the, the start of the, the beginning uh, of, of COVID. And, and of course, she said in August 2021, in response to Kieran Jenkins, the Channel 4 journalist, um, that uh, in response to a question, can you guarantee emails, WhatsApps, private emails, nothing will be off limits in this inquiry. And and she was completely unequivocal in response to that. So the questions that I think are most important is, one, did she manually uh, 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 delete them? Uh, As John Ferguson, the journalist who broke the story in the Sunday Mail, I don't know how he knows that, but clearly there's not been a denial from that, from Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, Then uh, the question gets to uh, why, did you do that? And when, crucially, did you do that? And, and and until we know that, and I'm not entirely sure if we can retrieve that information from Meta, the, the server that holds this or not, we'll find out. I'm not a, a technical person. Perhaps Alex is and can draw some um, light on that. But those the answers to those questions are really, really crucial, I think, as part of this investigation. Because let's be fair, quite clear, politically, 
Nicola Sturgeon benefited massively, and, and I would arguably right, rightly so from her communications throughout COVID and her clarity uh, throughout COVID. But the ability to, to look down at Westminster, and let's be face it, the shambles of Dominic Cummings' evidence yesterday and what was going on, all from WhatsApp messages largely, uh, I don't think anyone in the SNP and the Scottish Government can, can hold their hand, hand up and go, ha ha, look at them, when mm. we're going to be you know, accused of potentially a cover-up. And I say potentially because we still have to wait and see what transpires out of these 14,000 messages that have been sent. So I, I do think this is potentially very damaging for the reputation of the Scottish Government and indeed discourse most, more widely. This is an issue of the utmost importance. Every one of us had to go through COVID. Some of us had to, to go through much more challenging circumstances than others and losing loved ones. So they deserve utter transparency. Final point I want to make very quickly is this. Andy said something last week about why did uh, Nicola Sturgeon turn up at SNP conference and do the media um, uh, huddle and almost kind of detract from Hamza at a time when he needed to really be charting his own course. And he, Andy was pretty strong in saying, don't think I'd have done that. And I think it was bad um, uh, politics for that. Now, I suppose my question when we bring it back to this issue is, you know, Nicola Sturgeon and others would have been asked for these WhatsApp messages some time ago. We, we got that revealed by the KC in London. She, we, they must have known this issue was coming. And I just wonder again, thinking, adding to Andy's point, what was the purpose of that? And, and I, I don't think we're going to be able to put a finger on exactly what it is that has to come out of this, but something is, is starting to smell pretty fishy. And I, and I think that's me being as fair as I possibly can. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in Alex Cole-Hamilton uh, on this then. Alex, how do you reflect on, on what we have seen over the last what week or so when it comes to the revelations about government ministers, their WhatsApp messages, and whether or not they've been deleted, whether or not these things are now gone and cannot form any part of the public inquiry, which of course exists to try to learn from, to try to learn lessons on how to handle these things better. What are your reflections? Well, first and foremost, my reflections are with the families, the grieving COVID families who are um, looking for answers and may be forever denied those answers if these messages have been deleted. Just reflecting on the clip you've just played from Nicola Sturgeon there, Nicola Sturgeon is a very pre precise and assured politician, but she sounded, I thought, uncharacteristically rattled in that information, in that that interview um she said at the, the the end of that remark those remarks that she was committed to transparency but she i think it's clear now has deleted messages i don't think both of those things can be true at the same time you can't be committed to transparency but withhold some of that information i disagree with andy slightly he said at the top of his remarks that um it's absolutely fine to have private conversations. Of course, that's true. But if those private conversations are the bedrock on which decisions are then formed or give some indication of the power dynamics that were in play at the time, I think they are opposite to the inquiry and the deliberations of the inquiry. Take, for example, the revelations we've had about the importance of Carrie Johnson in number 10 at the time. I mean, I think that, you know, that was those are all private sort of um, scuttlebutt discussions around the campfire, but they will become very important in an analysis of who was making the decisions in number 10 at the time. So I don't think you can... You can easily disaggregate what private discussions matter and what don't until you've seen them. And if we aren't going to see them, then that really matters. Because if it's a context, and we may never know if those life and death decisions were hinging at any point around Nicola Sturgeon's desire just to do things slightly differently from London, that's important. We need to know that. But was that was that based on science or was that based on politics? And and if we if that is denied to us, then I think that has the makings of perhaps one of the biggest scandals in Scottish political history. If we we don't know why what was driving the decisions made in what has without doubt been the biggest crisis in our lifetimes, um, then that is a scandal. Mm. And so what is what is now appropriate? What where are we where are we at in terms of the Scottish Parliament has handed over sort of fourteen thousand messages, uh, is what we were told yesterday by Shona Robson, the Deputy First Minister. It, it, where do things go from here? Because if this is a structural failure that has allowed for ministers to delete WhatsApps, to delete evidence uh, that would be pertinent to the COVID inquiry, should the Scottish Parliament reflect on that and adapt to that? so that this can't happen again? 
I think there's um, arguably cause for a parliamentary inquiry into the Scottish government's handling of those messages and, and its processes at the time. But that's down the line. I think what's important right now is that we recover, if possible, I don't unfortunately have the technical knowledge to say whether that is achievable, that we recover as much of that um, that background chatter, let's call it that, um, which will, would have informed those decisions. Because it's one thing, you know, I think that... Um, Hamza Yusuf was quite smart during his exchange with Douglas Ross in trying to say, look, we're handing, we've handed over records of every decision that was taken. Sometimes the discussion that informed that decision is as important as the decision itself. And, and that's what's being withheld. Um, and until we see that, um, then we can't offer those grieving families the answers they seek. Yeah. If I may just come in just very briefly. Uh, you see... The problem with this um, is there may be absolutely very little or nothing in this um, in terms of the Scottish Government WhatsApps and those that have potentially been deleted. Um, there is There might be nothing in there of particular interest um, and, and that's fine and great, but we'll, we might never know. And as long as that ability to... And that's why I want to just, you know, go back to my comments about the, the, the fishiness, so to speak, is that... How do you lose that suggestion of a cover-up if we never see those messages? Um, and that's the big problem politically for uh, the Scottish government uh, and, and, and must be actually a source of regret, I'm, I'm sure. And if there was nothing to hide, why bother deleting? And this goes back to the why and the when. Um, and, and, and that I understand. That. Now, I, I, guys, none of us are, I'm guessing, technicians here. <laughs> um, no. Will we ever be able to find out why? Uh, sorry, more, sorry, rather when these, these, these uh, uh, will, will messages were deleted? Or will we be able, can they be retrieved in any way? I don't actually know the answers to those questions. If I may, Callum, just on that, I think that we may not know the full picture. If some of these messages are lost to us forever, then they're, they're gone. But we may get half of the jigsaw because people. There's, the thing about messages is there's always somebody on the other end of them. And Humza's has already said that he kept all his messages. So there, there's maybe exchanges that Nicola deleted from her side of things that he's got. I mean, I was exchanging um, texts and WhatsApp messages with Gene Freeman, with Jason Leach, um, with others at the time that I still retained. Um, and so, so there will be some of the picture out there. I'm sure of that. Yeah. That's what I was going to say as well, is that there's potentially, I think Nicola Sturgeon said she wasn't in group chat, but you know, if there's groups and there's potentially multiple people that have got evidence, as it were, have got the messages, other people who have received them, I would suggest that if you've deleted a WhatsApp message, then it is deleted as far as your side of, so it's registered to your phone number, but because of its end-to-end encryption and the way that WhatsApp kind of prides itself on that, I think if it's gone, it's probably gone. Uh, Go on, Andy. Yeah, I mean, well, just to close this off, I, I, the point Alex just made about how he was in messages with Jason Leach and Gene and others, that's that's exactly my point. I want that sort of thing to be able to happen with opposition leaders and government leaders during a crisis in the absolute knowledge that it will never be made public. I think it's really, really important. Otherwise, there's no trust and you actually can't achieve quite a lot if there's any chance that some of these things... So uh, there's, a, there's a line, uh, there's a line, but that's that was my point. The... Um, If I may, on that point, Andy, I mean, we were talking about the inevitability of a public inquiry in the foothills of the pandemic. You know, before we even had our first death here, we were talking, we knew this wave was coming. We knew we would have to account for it. So I don't understand why, you know, and I I never said anything or asked for for information I wouldn't have been entitled to, but but I was seeking clarification. I was making suggestions and, and there was a very collegiate atmosphere at the time. I, from the start, as an opposition health spokesperson, thought it likely that my messages might be called upon at some point for a distant future inquiry. I can't imagine that they didn't think the same. The, the, just the, the one thing to take it away from the inquiry and bring it back to politics as well. Of course, you know we're crazy if we don't think this has an impact on everything else that's going on with the SNP and with Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, this is, this is just more bad news for Hamza and more bad news for Hamza that is not actually of his own making. I mean, you know, we've we, we've heard very little or nothing about the police inquiry for the last few months, but this, you know, this is not going to help, if we can put it this way, the Nicola Sturgeon narrative 
at all at the moment. This is obviously nothing to do with the police investigation whatsoever, but the the impression of getting rid of dodgy messages on your phone, which, let's face it, that is the perception here, whether it's true or not. That is just going to do this overall narrative for Nicola Sturgeon and for Hamza Youssef. Absolutely no favours at all. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's one of those things. That, and it's it, the, the fact it keeps on running. I think that's, from a journalist point of view, it has been days and this is not resolved. That's, you know, that's part of the other, uh, another part of this. Um, Alex, I just want to put this to you from John, who tweeted us uh, to say, ask, to ask you about the COVID inquiry, which obviously we're doing, and what his party will do along with others to hold the Scottish government to account. You mentioned a few moments ago, a parliamentary inquiry. Is that, is that what you will do to hold the, the Scottish government to account on this? I mean, I think that's that's something that we really need to consider. I'm anxious about that because as soon as you agree to a parliamentary inquiry, then it allows the Scottish government to climb up and say, well, we're not going to answer any more questions because there's a coming inquiry. Um, but ultimately, you know, that there is a role for government to hold, sorry, for parliament to hold government to account on process. And that's arguably something that's gone awry here and something that we'll need to a reckoning on. But I think that we don't want that to get in the way of the very legitimate questions COVID families are asking through the inquiry right now. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. Thank you very much for that. And as I say, it kind of rumbles on. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that, of course, as it uh, as it continues to evolve, I suppose, that situation. Uh, you can email your questions, by the way, to Andy, to Jeff, to any of our guests. Hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address to get in touch. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Alex, want to focus on another couple of sort of, you know, contemporary current affairs issues. What, what, what do you see as the Scottish Parliament's role in in considering the, the conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas? We've had a couple of weeks discussing this now, uh, whether it was about flying the Israeli flag or not, as the decision was taken outside the Scottish Parliament, whether it's been Hamza Yusuf's own reaction and indeed his personal connection to what is going on in Gaza. What is the Scottish Parliament's role at a time like this? Well, before I answer that, Calum, I think I should prefix with a reflection that I met with the um, Israeli embassy in London virtually on uh, Monday, um, as, along with a number of other parliamentarians, and we received a briefing on the situation. And they started that meeting with a two-minute video that I wish I'd never seen, frankly, and it was the um, very graphic depiction of the atrocities, um, videos taken by Hamas and put on their Telegram channels of people literally being murdered on camera, not just murdered, but mutilated, children burned alive. I mean, this is the, uh, the, the point that we need to keep coming back to. So uh, I mean, it's very difficult, obviously. We're a devolved administration um, with very limited external affairs powers. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to, we have a duty now within Scotland to de-escalate the tensions that are very evident in terms of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um, we need to take the heat out of this, um, but, but recognise that the, there is a there is a voice that the Scottish Parliament has, which does have an international presence. So um, I'm gratified that largely that voice has been in unison across the chamber. Um, but yeah, we're, we're limited in what we can do, but we can't turn away from this. Yeah. 
Do you feel like there is anything of a consensus? Is there kind of unanimity? It's interesting you used the word a moment ago that during the pandemic, there was a kind of collegiate feel about how things were being done. Um, We've heard more and more on this podcast that that it does not feel like that right now in the Scottish Parliament. I'm just wondering if there's unity on, on such big international issues as this. I've had more private text exchanges with Humza in the last two weeks than I have in his entire leadership. And, and I think that's largely uh, down to the, the huge compassion I feel towards the plight of his family in Gaza and my hopes for their safe evacuation to Egypt very soon. Um, I mean, he and I were friends um, before he became leader. But, um, but yeah, I think that there is a, a sense, there is a, a tremendous outpouring of support for Humza on a personal level, given the... the family situation he has and then by and large you know we don't have the difficulties i think that the rest of the country have in things like calling for a temporary ceasefire to allow um humanitarian aid um and the evacuation of people who need to get out of gaza um to to bring in so so there is i think more of a collegiate consensual approach to this this whole crisis in scotland Mm. And where do you stand on the language being used here on ceasefire or humanitarian pause or whatever? What 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 should the the message be? What do you want to happen right now? Well, I mean, let me sort of give you a, a helicopter view narrative of where the Lib Dems are. First of all, we passionately support um, the idea of a, a Palestinian um, state with self-determination and a country to call their own. But at the same time, we support Israel's right to defend itself within the bounds of international law. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I mean, the, the path of peace seems vanishingly far away, but it is something we need to rejoin um, as soon as possible. In terms of the language, we were one of the first parties to call for a temporary ceasefire to allow aid to get into Gaza. And, and let me unpack that, if I may, very briefly, Callum, is that we are seeing an influx of aid. We're seeing the trucks going in with food and medical supplies. But one of the intractable issues right now is the provision of fuel. And I understand that because Israel points to Hamas and say, well, they have half a million gallons of fuel squirreled away in their underground cave networks. If you need fuel, hospitals of Gaza, desalination plants of Gaza, go and ask Hamas for some. Um, and Hamas have no interest in helping because they want to see they're quite happy with their people suffering um, because it helps their cause. So I think we need a, a solution whereby a third party, whether that's the United Nations or the Qataris, um, can safeguard the delivery of fuel to where it's needed for civilian purposes in the Gaza Strip, whether that's hospitals or desalination plants. But you need a, a corridor of safety for that to happen. And that's why we've called for that temporary ceasefire um, to allow that to happen. Mm. Andy, um, there are, there are a lot. Well, firstly, words from this country really matter. We are a big player in this region. Much of what is going on right now um, can be traced back to our involvement uh, and the mandate um, and the creation of Israel in the first place. Um, this is an ongoing problem, and we are deeply embedded and involved in it. I mean, obviously, the US is going to be the main player from the West, but we are very much number two. And because of that, our words matter a great deal, and that's why the Labour argument at the moment is actually very important. And it, I know that um, you know it can look... You know, we're sitting over here in relative safety, safety opining on it, but I do think that what we see over here really matters to this area and people take their lead from it on both sides. Um, I think Israel are losing moral superiority at the moment. Um, I think the Israeli government is a dangerous government. I have thought that for a long time. Uh, I think it's a very poor government. Long before October the 7th, I think it was acting in a very poor way. And I think it's a government that is bad for Israel and bad for the Middle East. Um, but that's the Israeli government. That's a different thing. Um, what they are, uh, Israel cannot defend itself from Hamas without the tragic death of innocent Palestinians. It is a dense urban war, and Hamas deliberately put their own people, they put Palestinian people deliberately in the line of fire because they know that the more innocent Palestinians that die at the hands of Israel, the more positive PR Hamas get from it. That is what they want. That is their aim. Um, But last night's bombing of the refugee camp was totally unacceptable. Um, 
It was, in the first instance, obviously a complete tragedy, which killed many, 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 many innocent people. But it was also a completely stupid thing for Israel to do. It does them absolutely no favours at all. Um, they lose moral superiority, as if they have any anyway. They lose moral superiority all over the world. Uh, it's exactly what Hamas wants them to do. Um, because what it does is it draws closer the false equivalence between a wicked terrorist organization that did the things that Alex just outlined in the video that he saw yesterday and the state of a free democracy. Um, and as, as long as they keep behaving like they did last night with that bombing, and as long as they continue to find completely the wrong, the wrong place on the spectrum of self-defense, they are going to harm themselves. But that does not mean that we should call for a ceasefire. And I have to say, I totally disagree with Alex and Anas and others in the calling for a ceasefire. A ceasefire is something that takes place between, largely between two rational actors in a war. So, for instance, you could even call for a ceasefire in Ukraine on the basis that Putin is some form of rational actor and Russia is some form of rational actor. Hamas is not a rational actor. You can't call for a ceasefire when only one side has the capability of engaging in a ceasefire. And from that point of view, a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause are the same thing. What we're doing is we're calling for Israel to show significantly more restraint than they are showing. Now, we understand why they're not showing that restraint. As I said the other week, this is the equivalent of 10,000 people having been killed on 7-7, right? This is an enormous terrorist atrocity of unprecedented scale, and they're angry and they want to defend themselves. But, they, but we are having, we have to, the role in the West is to call for them to show significantly more restraint than we are. And the more we talk about ceasefires, the more that we provide equivalence between Hamas and Israel. That is what we are doing, and it is encouraging the sort of behaviour you see at Liverpool Street Station last night, and is it encouraging this perception that in some way there are two equal actors here that are not equal actors. Our job is to say to Israel, you have to stop this because you are doing yourself and the region and the world no favours. You're playing into Hamas's hands, Hezbollah's hands, Iran's hands, Putin's hands. So stop it. That's our job. But we can't get caught up in this sort of language when ultimately it doesn't mean anything when you're dealing with Hamas. So if I can just come back on that, Callum, I mean, I, I understand exactly what Andy says. And Hamas are not rational actors. They are terrorists. They exist to see the death of Israel and Israelis. Um, and, you know, they, history will judge them as such. And um, I think it's important to, to recognize, though, that, you know, a ceasefire right now, a temporary ceasefire to allow the humanitarian um, interventions that we've talked about, there's not would not open the door for another Hamas attack right now. You have Israel is at a state of war. It is mobilized in a way that it hasn't been for decades. Um, and you could, I think, safely allow that to happen and allow those aid convoys in and those, those um, evacuation of the, the very... Um, most vulnerable Palestinians out of it um, without having um, some kind of capitulation with Hamas there. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Mm. Uh, thanks again for your thoughts on that, Alex. Uh, a difficult issue, and again, one that's going to run and run. Right, shall we talk about um, some Scottish parliamentary politics uh, while we've got you? Uh, Ash Regan defected this week. You've now got a, an MSP colleague from the Alba party sitting, well, I suppose not that far from you probably, Alex. How do you feel about that? Well, it's elevated me from not leading the smallest party in Holyrood anymore, <laughs> which is uh, fab. Um, well, good luck to her. You know, I, I think um, it, it's indicative, I think, of uh, a, an independence movement in abject disarray. Um, I think that there is definitely um, a wing of the independence movement that has been frustrated for a long time at the lack of progress. Um, this is... Uh, played out in the defection of Ash Reagan. But, uh, I mean, she is um, obviously um, a character in Scottish politics, but I don't think that she carries a, a depth or a weight or a substance um, which will trouble um, Hamza Yusuf and the leadership of the SNP greatly. Mm. Jeff, what do you make of this defection? I'm quite fascinated by it. Yeah, I, 
I'm not too sure it was a huge surprise, um, given um, the, the, the approach that Ash Reagan took in her leadership campaign, uh, not least uh, appointing an ALBA um, uh, activist as her social media uh, campaigner, um, that, that this has transpired. A couple of observations, if I may. Um, firstly, I, I think Hamza's stock has actually been on the rise since conference. That conference could have been a real shambles uh, for him. Um, he's handled the personal uh, tragedy that he's dealing with just now uh, very well. He managed to unite the party around an independent strategy. Whether we agree with it or not it is almost irrelevant. He managed to, to create some sort of unity. And he has been making policy interventions. Again, they can be discussed and disagree with, but he's actually getting on the front foot. But... Um, I thought his response to Ash Reagan's um, uh, defection was pretty poor judged, if I'm being honest with you. To say it's no great loss uh, doesn't really augur well for being the first activist, not just of the party, but of the entire movement, as, as he said in the uh, leadership uh, campaign. Uh, and not also, uh, let's not forget that uh, Ash was uh, a minister not that long ago, this year indeed, and was deputy to Hamza. <laughs> so um, I, I think you've got to be able to, to, to try and rise above it, whatever your personal feelings are, and just say, oh, it's very sorry to see her go. I, I, I wish she'd engaged with our uh, deliberations at conference and, uh, and uh, I'm going to prove that she's wrong to defect because we're going to take this forward and, and be a bit more statesmanlike in the, in, the, in the approach. So that's my first observation. Second observation um is this, and it does link to what Alex says about the wider movement. I have said on countless times on this podcast that, you know, a, a divided uh, national movement for independence cannot succeed. And there has to be some sort of compromise and coming together and acceptance of different uh, beliefs and approaches within that. And, and I don't know how that manifests itself, but... You can't continue to have the SNP taking this, oh, Lisa Cameron, nobody liked her anyway. No, she was, she's now a Tory. Might be true, doesn't matter. Uh, just the present, presentation of this to the wider populace is these lot just don't really have a hold on or, or any sense of unite, uh, united purpose. So I do feel that at some point in the very near future, if there's to be any successful campaign um, uh, moving forward, there has to be an, an accommodation of sorts. And you need to take the personalities out of that, however difficult that might be, but you have to be able to do that. I was in the Yes campaign in 2014. I did not agree with everything that Patrick Harvey said, but I respected his right to have those views. And that's the sort of approach you need to have if you're going to successfully take forward the movement. Mm. Um, Alex, a few other recent developments just to get some thoughts on. Uh, the co-leader of the Scottish Greens says that independence is not a red line which would prevent the party potentially doing a deal with Scottish Labour in the future. Um, Lorna Slater's setting out her red lines, or lack of them. Do you have any that would prevent you wanting to work with the Scottish Labour Party? Well, just on Lorna's comments on uh, her red lines on independence, it's fascinating because as far as I can tell the Green Party is still in the position of the de facto referendum for the general election. So they're only going to have that one line in their manifesto to begin with. Look, um, yeah, I always get asked about coalitions. Um, you do... Um, you I wonder know, why, I wonder a, why. <laughs> well, it's great because I think, you know, Scottish journalists keep coming up to me and saying, well, you're going to be part of what's next. If, if change is happening, then the Lib Dems numerically need to be part of that. Um, and, uh, well, first and foremost, it's important to state there are no pacts or coalitions or, or agreements in, in existence and nor will there be. We are Liberal Democrats. We will uh, aim to provide every citizen in every house, in every street in Scotland, a candidate to vote for and a reason to vote for us. Um, that said, you know, change is coming and we don't fear that. Um, and yes, I mean, there, there are, I think, real important uh, liberal changes we want to make to Scotland. I didn't get into politics just to carp from the sidelines, perennially in opposition, but I don't leap out of bed every day saying, how do I get into government? How do I get into power? Mm. Um, I can tell you that there are definitely parties I would not work with. And I you know, give you an exclusive right now. I think both the Conservative Party and the SNP are part of the problem. They're the old politics of Scotland right now. They have starved our uh, our 
firmament of political oxygen on the issues that matter to normal people because of the clash of nationalisms that they brought to the table. The, the nationalism of the SNP, of course, but the British nationalism, the Brexit nationalism of the UK Tory party. Um, and it's been the sum total of debate for so long. You know, how do you stop a, a, a referendum or, or have a referendum will be the sum total of the vote that people cast time and time again. I'm tired of getting people to vote for me based on who I'm not. I want them to to hear the, the gamut of policies that we have. And the fact that when you vote for a Lib Dem, you get a hardworking community activist who cares about internationalism and our place in the world, who cares about the health service and the education of your kids. Um, so, so I just don't think they're part of the future so i'm happy to rule out coalition with them and i'm not going to prejudge the outcome of an election but we are open for business in a meaningful grown-up consensual discussion and um, with parties who share our values about the future that scotland can have interesting Andy, there is a, I mean, there is a point here, that, as Alex has, has touched on there, the Lib Dems could be really very influential after the general election and indeed the Scottish parliamentary election a couple of years later. The Lib Dems are a very, very important political party north and south of the border right now, far more than they have been for a long, long time. Um, if you look at Westminster, because we know that's coming first, um, I don't think Keir Starmer is as far ahead as polls say he is. Let's, you know, polling, you can usually cut polling in half uh, because there will be a certain group of people who will go to the polling station having said they're never going to vote for this bunch of rags ever again. Uh, and they get there and they go, oh, OK, one more time. There are Those people exist. They exist in every democracy. It happens all over, the, all over the place. So I don't think Keir Starmer is in the kind of, you know, 90, 100 seat majority territory that a lot of uh, polls say he is. I think it is relatively tight. It is not in the least bit out of the question that Keir Starmer will either have such a small majority or even a minority uh, that he feels he needs to pick up the phone to Ed Davey. It's not that difficult a phone call. I mean, there's not that much that separates Keir Starmer and Ed Davey on the kind of central basis of how you run a country and how you do politics. So I think that's a perfectly viable phone call. I think there's decisions to be made by Ed Davey on not making such a mess of it that they did the last time between 2010 and 2015, when all they extracted was a referendum on voting reform that nobody remembers and nobody understood at the time anyway. There are many, many better things they could extract that would be much more worthwhile to them. Um, But there's no question they're part of the mix. And if that happens at Westminster in a year's time, then for the next 18 months, Alex Cole Hamilton is a very, very important player in Scottish politics, far more important than the Greens, far more important than the Tories. Because, as Alex said, there are only certain things that can actually happen mathematically and politically uh, in that sort of situation. The last Scottish Parliament poll that was done puts the Tories, uh, puts the SNP and Labour on basically the same number of seats and has a unionist majority in the Parliament. If that is the sort of poll that comes out, because the Tories will not be a feature, the Tories will vote for an Asarwar for First Minister and they'll do it for nothing. It's, it's basically free because they won't want a nationalist uh, in Butte House. That puts Alex Cole Hamilton very much in the mix. Um, and it's, it's, it's viable. It is not only viable, it's, I think, on. Very kind of you, Andy. You do realise that everything you've just said is going to appear on a Liberal Democrat leaflet coming to you very near. <laughs> well, I should hope so. I wouldn't have said it otherwise. <laughs> I mean, we... we, we and he'll we invoice always, you for it as well, Alex. We always say in this podcast you should declare an interest. Well, Andy, clearly you've got a contract with the Scottish Liberal Democrats. So um, I think you need to say that. Um, right, let's bring us back to earth and a bit of reality, OK? <laughs> Here we go, Alex. In two thousand and seven, right, when I that was my first election in politics, the Liberals uh, under Nicola Stephen had sixteen seats, sixteen percent of the constituency vote, and eleven percent of the regional vote. Uh, in twenty twenty one, the last election, you had four seats, seven percent of the constituency uh, vote, and five percent in the regional vote. That's a huge decline in fourteen years. Now, I, I, I to somewhat, uh, in some degree. Recognise, you know, your your rationale for that in terms of the, as you see it, the the polarisation of politics uh, around the constitution. But nonetheless, that is the ball where it lies. What are you going to do to gain relevance in that Scottish parliamentary context? What what, what approach do you see that gains you back to something of the order of where you were in two thousand seven? 
Well, just to take issue with something you said there, Jeff, that's the ball where it lay. It's not where it lies now. Um, we were told when I became leader in 2021 that we were going to go backwards at the last year's Scottish local government election. We outperformed every single opposition party in that election. We put on a third onto our councillor base. So, you know, against all expectations, you, you rightly reference, you know, where we were in 2007. We got 11% in the opinion on the regional list vote, which is actually, you know, where our gains will be made in the Scottish Parliament um, elections next time. There will be additional if the boundary changes come off. I think that we're in play in eight or nine constituencies. Um, But that said, you know, consistently our polling for the last year and a half has had us there or thereabouts, 10 Nine, ten, eleven percent. So within touching distance of those, that polling of, as to where we were in two thousand and seven. As to relevance, you know, I don't actually need to push too hard on that door. I think it was Tom Gordon from the Herald who rang me up during the Labour conference because he was uh, quite surprised by Jackie Bailey's suggestion that Labour might decide to merge all of Scotland's territorial health boards. And he said, "You guys don't really like centralisation, and Labour going to need you. You're going to be part of what's next. So what do you have to say about that?" So journalists are already seeing the relevance of my party in terms of um, where the power will lie in the change that's coming. And make no mistake, I mean, I think that there have been two big game changes um, on the horizon for a while. One has already happened with the departure of Nicola Sturgeon. Um, and we can see already, you know, SMP shipping lots of support that was tied up in that trust for Nicola and everything that's happened since with the police investigation. The second game changer is still to happen, and that is a change of government at, at Westminster. When the, the when the boogeyman of the Tories is gone, the recruiting sergeant that has existed for the last 13 years in Westminster, which has driven people into the arms of the SMP, is gone. Um, I think that people have the luxury to vote with their heart and what they see as being you know the the community service the public service that Lib Dems offer so I'm in great heart I don't think we're going to have to push too hard on that door of relevance um, and and you'll see it come I mean if I may just come back on this I'm really keen to tease this out and let let, let me ask the question slightly uh, different way and and listen uh, for what it's worth I think um, you know you've proved yourself to be an effective parliamentarian in, in Holyrood and punched above your weight personally but I suppose my question is this. We know the framing of the next Scottish election. Um, and it's going to be Labour saying, you know, it's time for a change. Um, uh, we've seen that already coming out from their mantra of let's, let's, you know, the SNP are tired, all the rest. But the SNP will say standing up for Scotland, the only way we can, you know, uh, improve our circumstances is with uh, detaching ourselves from Westminster. And the Tories are going to say, no, 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 steady as she goes on the economy and, and vote for us to, 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 to stop independence and stop the party of independence. What is the thing for the Scottish Liberal Democrats? What are you going to campaign on? I suppose that's what I'm trying to get out. What, and that's what I mean by relevance. What's the thing? Like, Alex Colham, I'm going to vote for him and his party because what? That's well, this is great. This is the, the press play on the Lib Dem advertorial now. So, no, firstly, you know, there are many reasons I'm not a member of the Labour Party. Why vote Lib Dem because instead of Labour? I'll tell you why. We're a party of internationalism. We believe firmly, absolutely, that our future lies with Europe. We, and our approach to that is pragmatic, it's realistic, but it is relentless and unapologetic. You won't get that from Labour if you, like us, are an internationalist supporting Europe. We believe in community and the power of community. Labour are a centralising party. We absolutely reject that. We were the first and only party to campaign against the introduction of a national care service because we believe that the decision-making happens better when it happens closer to the people it affects, not in a vast and unnecessary bureaucracy at the centre, which, again, Labour embrace and gravitate towards. We, we oppose that entirely. We're a party of reform. We believe in the reform of the Scottish Parliament. We re- believe in a power surge to local authorities, to giving power back to communities, None of this you get with Anasar or the Labour Party. Now, of course, there are many areas we agree on, and that's why you know I'm optimistic about a future cooperation. And let's nothing formal, nothing um, being pre prejudged on that. Um, but there are many re- reasons, and it's my task as leader, first of all, to earn a hearing 
with the Scottish party, with the Scottish public. I don't think we've had the right to that hearing for a while, but they are coming back to us now. And we need to then, I think, lay out our stall in a differentiated way that says that Lib Dems are the party of internationalism, with a party of localism, with a party of individual freedom and a celebration of diversity. Um, And you only get that with the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Thanks for the opportunity for the advertorial, Jeff. That was good. That was punchy, Jeff, punchy stuff. I'll, 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 I'll come in and just... I'll pull, since I'm a fully signed up, paid for employee of the Liberal Democrats now, I'll come in and just polish that a little bit, shall I? <laughs> Honestly, watching that invoice grow by the second. I know, it's great. I charge by the minute as well, so that's good. Um, let me let me bring it back slightly away from Holyrood and back to Westminster, because that's what's going to be happening in a year. And um, something... Alex said is absolutely spot on, which is that all of this is actually moot if Rishi Sunak pulls a win out of the bag next year, incidentally, because mm. if Keir Starmer doesn't walk into Downing Street, there is zero chance that Anas Sarwar can walk into Butte House. That's not happening. Those two things are not compatible. Um, the absolute dream result for the SNP, let's be crystal clear, the SNP are desperate for Rishi Sunak to be Prime Minister after next October. That is the dream result. So, but the question is, if that doesn't uh, happen... Jeff Aberdeen's shaking his head. Yeah, but he knows I'm right. Because of course, of course the SNP want the Tories in Downing Street. That's the narrative. That's, that, the, that's absolutely critical. Anyway, it's we're talking about the Lib Dems. Not, this is about the Lib Dems. On, this, is, this show is about the Lib Dems, not the SNP. Just, no, no, I, I don't disagree okay. with you on that. Give me a second. I disagree, I, I disagree with you on the basis that uh, if Rishi Sunak was to, to do the unthinkable and, and pull off a victory, that it necessarily follows that Anasarwar can't become... First Minister. I just don't think that's necessary. I don't know what basis you have for saying that. Well, um, you could argue it the other way that actually um, uh, Annas, uh, you know, a close miss, I think we'd all accept that, a close result in, in Westminster. Um, he's not shackled to some of the decision making of a UK Labour Party, which doesn't always equate, as we are seeing in the press recently with the fallouts with Annas and, and Keir. Uh, I don't, just don't, don't think it necessarily follows. So I don't know that, that that theory or that thesis is right necessarily. That's my only point. Please and continue. There's other, well, and there's another dynamic that there's other there's other but there's other dynamic on that, isn't there? That Anna's told us on this podcast, which is he says he needs to be campaigning to uh, become first minister and to win the Scottish election halfway through a good and strong and successful Keir Starmer government. And if it's not good, strong and successful at that point, then actually he's going to have a bit of a mountain to climb. So there's an extra layer to it as well. Uh, and he said he himself said last week at the Institute for Government, I think it was, that, that but the, the, the very simple answer before I move back to the much more important Liberal Democrats, the very simple <laughs> answer to your question is um, Keir Starmer being in Downing Street de-risks the concept of a soft nationalist voting Labour instead of voting SNP. It totally de-risks the Tories are not in Downing Street. That's why I'm saying that. Um, but... Let's say it is Keir Starmer and let's say he needs Ed Davies' help. There are, I think, three things that uh, Liberal Democrats talk about a lot that differentiates them from everybody else. One is voting reform, which precisely nobody on the street cares about, right? So that's what they uh, did the last time. I agree with voting reform, incidentally, but nobody cares, right? It's just not a thing. Nobody's remotely interested in it. So what, I mean, they'd be very well served to completely ignore that. But the two issues that Alex talked about are really quite important in terms of extracting something from Keir Starmer. One is obviously the relationship with the EU. Um, and the other one is the relationships inside the UK and that sort of federalist, localist type of agenda. Those are things that differentiate the Lib Dems from anybody else. And this is what I said before about the Clegg Lib Dems and what I think was a bit of a waste of time of being in office between 2010 and 2015. It was just a waste of five years of the Lib Dems being there because they achieved absolutely nothing in terms of their own agenda at all. They can't make that mistake again. And I think being very firm and extracting significant concessions on the relationship with Europe, not rejoining the EU, that's not that's a pipe dream, that's not happening, but on the closeness of the relationship with Europe, but more particularly on localism inside the UK, because not only is the UK a very centralist country, arguably Scotland is even more centralist than the UK is in terms of the power at Holyrood compared to the power at local authority and regional level. So that is what I think they should do. And that's why it's important, I think, for people to look out for that sort of change potentially coming down the road if the Lib Dems are a feature of government at Westminster and then at Holyrood. 
Alex. I'm I'm obviously not going to tie Ed to any course of action in terms of what a hung parliament looks like. But I think Andy's um, largely spot on in terms of the kind of things that differentiate us from Labour. Um, I would take issue with it. We got nothing out of coalition. I think, you know, um, lifting the income tax thresholds, the income tax thresholds, which took more people out of poverty than Labour managed in 13 years of government, um, the ending of child detention, um, for one. Um, But yeah, I I think that um, there were wasted opportunities. I wasn't... I was a youth worker during coalition. I was barely involved in politics. Um, And I am the first Lib Dem leader to have no connection to the coalition. So we very much turned a page on that. But at the same time, um, yeah, I I come back to what I said at the start. You know, I got into politics to make a difference, to change things. Now, um, it's, it's, there is a line of sight to us having the opportunity to do that again. And with power, we can make big and liberal changes, which are about localism, about our relationship with Europe. Um, th- there is, a, a, I think, a, a chapter of the Labour Party that is in step with us, even on voting reform, Andy. You said that it's not required anymore. But my goodness, the psychodrama that we have seen in the Conservative Party, which is actually, let's face it, the Conservative Party isn't one party. It's a confederation of about three or four different viscerally hate, hating each other factions that are just sort of tied up together in this sack of the Conservative Party, which stays together out of pragmatism and nothing else, um, that actually if we could change the voting system to a more European style of STV or proportional representation, you would it would allow an ecosystem of all these parties to, to prosper in and of their own right, and I think we, I, agree. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't say it didn't matter. I think it does matter. Yeah. I just think nobody really cares about it. Well, I think all the other stuff that's going on is just like which is why we lost the the AV referendum because if you can't explain a, a topic in one sentence on the doorstep, you are bound to lose, and that's why we did. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, but but I think you, uh, I would I would agree with where we're differentiated from Labour and the huge opportunities that lie ahead. And let's remember, we're in second place in 90 constituencies behind the Tories in England. So those big by-election victories, those huge by-election victories, which John Curtis said very kindly, this also goes on Lib Dem leaflets, that the Lib Dems have a habit of making the spectacular look routine. You're going to see that in a lot more places, not just in, in England, but in Scotland as well. I just want to come, please. Um, you, you, you kind of brought together a couple of themes here, which I think are actually uh, what a part of one thread. So let's just reflect quickly on what happened with Nick Clegg and the coalition government. And this is this in lies at a risk for Ed Davey and indeed uh, Alex as well uh, ahead of the Scottish Parliament elections. They went in there with the AV referendum, which, if I if memory serves, was. Um, held on the same day as local elections in England and indeed the Scottish elections in 2011. It was completely shrouded out into an irrelevance. And I tend to agree. I think it's an important uh, thing to look at and would be quite favourable to a a new voting system. But the big thing was the tuition fees pledged from Nick Clegg. That was the thing that killed you. And you got taken to the cleaners. And so I want to bring back this point about what am I voting for with the Liberal Democrats? Because I think it's so important you set your stall out on what one or two things. Vote for us, you will get this. And if you do that, make sure it is an absolute cast iron guarantee, non-negotiable, a part of any potential coalition agreement. Because that was the day that the Liberal Democrats' fortunes were completely uh, obliterated. Uh, the day the tuition fee pledge went, his credibility was shot. And so there is a risk in all of this talk about being part of government, totally accept that you want to be able to affect change, but being clear on what your offer is to the people and being completely resolved that you will not bend to any coalition agreement on that offer. Hands up. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. Jeff, and we learned our lesson. I mean, it was a bitter pill. And we lost an incredible number of really dedicated public servants, both in Parliament and in council chambers across the country, and the staff that went with them. Um, Look, I I wasn't in the room. Had I been, I would have railed against that because I we got that dead wrong and you know we we've apologized for that and we have suffered for that i think the trust is coming back and i point again to the local elections of last year where we increased by a third and outperformed everybody else outside of the smb um and and i think yeah that, that lesson is learned trust matters um if your politics is about speaking to people and 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 taking them on a journey and if you if you 
let them down, they remember that. So it was for, you know, the Labour suffered for, because of Iraq for a long time. And, and, but, but people have long memories, but they are forgiving as well. And I think that we, we've reached that stage where people are willing to listen to us again. They see that change is coming. And when that happens, we're going to be part of what's next. Um, and my job now is to get the party ready. It's enthusiastic. We're meeting in Edinburgh this weekend for our conference. And it's, it's the most subscribed autumn conference I can remember. We're in good heart. We're ready to fight those elections. But we go... I I think with a recognition of uh, the journey we've been through, but I'm looking ahead more than back now. If I may, just can very briefly. This is a, a bit of a diversion, but I just wanted your reflections, uh, Alec. If I may, and it's a personal one. I, 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 you know, came up in politics when Charles Kennedy was a hugely respected and formidable politician. I, I, I had huge respect for him personally. I met him on a number of occasions when I worked at Westminster. He was also, he was also like. Um, you know, accommodating with his time, he'd come over and have a chat with you, you know, in the backstage at question time or in the parliament. And I thought that the <clears throat> the way he approached the Liberal Democrat conundrum of relevance with the big two at general election was, you know, is that something that you'll look at in terms of how he achieved that through his one force of character, force of really good debate, uh, debating skills uh, in terms of how you move forward? I have a photo of Charles in my wallet on my membership card. And, um, you know, he was a mentor. Um, he was a friend. And I, I recognize what you say, Jeff, in terms of um, giving people uh, far junior to him his time. I mean, he yeah. I talk about our, our autumn conference. He was very good at attending conference. And he would, you know, when you were a young aspirant candidate, and you make a speech about some random debate and you come off stage and Charles is there writing notes for his own speech and he catches you and he winks at you and gives you a thumbs up. It is like it's like Christmas, honestly. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I A lot of my politics is shaped by Charles. I mean, I will never be Charles and I could never hope to be. But um, I stand on his shoulders um, and, and my leadership style is very much of his stable. Alex, thank you very much indeed. It's been a really, really interesting conversation with you um, on this episode. And we're very grateful for you joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you. For, thank you for having me. No, not at all. Not at all. And Andy, you can keep us up to date with the campaign material from here on out for the Lib Dems. Absolutely. <laughs> my, my pitch is made <laughs> and my invoice is in the post. <laughs> uh, Alex Cole Hamilton, thank you very much. Thanks for being on the podcast. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 